Father, Lord, I thank you for this evening so far. Lord, I thank you for, again, an opportunity to sing praises of the one who sent his son to come to this earth and be born for us. Lord, as we celebrate and as we praise you on this evening of Christmas, I pray that you would help us to just calm ourselves from the craziness of what's been going on around us. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to focus on your word and the message that you have here for us tonight. I pray your spirit would do the work that I can't do. And Lord, that would take this feeble attempt at a Christmas message and would use it for your good and for your honor and your glory and use it to to change us, Lord. We thank you. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. Thanks for coming out and joining us for this second of our candlelight services. We began tonight with the question that Charlie Brown asked, isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? I hope that the words of the songs that we've sung and the passage of scripture that were read reminded you that Christmas is more than just a time to put up lights, to give gifts, and to eat way more food than we should. We'll do that anyway, but it's not what it's all about. Uh, If you were to ask me what my favorite Christmas verse was, I would have to say it's Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. This must be one of the most hope-filled verses in all of Scripture. And I would bet that most of you have heard it before, probably many times. But it's very possible that many of us are unaware of the circumstances that was happening in Isaiah's life and in his world that he was writing this verse of hope into. And so the past few weeks I've been studying about what was going on in the world of Israel at that time, and it's given me a greater appreciation for what he was writing. And so over the next few moments, I'd like to give you some of the background to this passage and then hopefully apply what's going on here to our lives today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 8. You won't be able to see anything. Just realize that. So you can just put your Bible away. It'll be up there. The book of Isaiah contains by far the most and the greatest prophecies of the promised Messiah. It is so amazing and so specific that there are a number of people that doubted its authenticity for a long, long, long time. They'd say, no, Isaiah writes about this Jesus, and he's just too specific. Then the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, and it authenticated the book of Isaiah, that he had really written it long before Jesus came, in fact, around 700 years. And what's amazing about Isaiah's prophecies of hope is that they find themselves surrounded by deep sadness terrible darkness, and impending judgment. Now, I realize that this is Christmas Eve, and we don't typically talk about war and famine and death and darkness on Christmas Eve, but we will tonight. Uh, And I'm asking you, if, if you would, just stick with me. Stick with me through the gloom and the doom, because I think there's a wonderful payoff in the end. I think the reality of these things, that, that the greatest hope comes in the darkest night, really makes the light so shockingly bright and so wonderfully welcome. Isaiah lived and he ministered to the people of God from around 740 to 690 BC. 
So about 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he was preaching a message of repentance to a people who were definitely not in the mood to repent. At this time in history, the nation of Israel had been split into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom, up north, the ten tribes, and then you had the southern kingdom, which was the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. We call the southern kingdom Judah and the northern kingdom Israel or Ephraim. In the north, they were all bad, all the time. And in the south, they were mostly bad most of the time, but there was some good kings in there, and there were times that the Israelites turned back to God. So Isaiah is a prophet to the kingdom of Judah during the time when the Assyrian army, a super cruel and awful country, awful people who were cruel to their, the people they captured, was invading and capturing the ten northern tribes of Israel. So they watched this happen as warnings of judgment on them were still going on. So Isaiah is living a land that was once honoring to God, but now the people want nothing to do with him because they've created their own gods. And so Isaiah is begging them to repent, to turn back to God. And in the midst of this world... God gives Isaiah some advice. Chapter 8, verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that these people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. I had a chuckle as I first read that verse because don't say a conspiracy when there's a conspiracy. Don't be afraid of their threats. You know, it just seems relevant. Uh, but what he's saying here is don't live the way that they live, right? Don't believe all the lies that they believe. So we, the truth is we don't know what the conspiracy was that he was talking about. But we do know it was making the people anxious and afraid. And so, so the Lord says, Instead, in verse 13, the Lord of hosts, him shall you sanctify. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. The idea here is to keep God in the center. Put him first and fear him. And it's not some kind of paralyzing fear where where everything you do, you're scared that God's just going to zap you. It's more this idea that you recognize God's control over all things, his sovereignty in this world. And so as you live, you don't fear the circumstances because you know who's ultimately in control of all things. Fear God. Have a reverence for him. Live in his presence. Then in verse 14, we have a prophecy about the future rejection of Jesus by the nation of Israel. It says, verse 14, He will be a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many among them shall stumble, and they shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. These verses are about the Christ who would come, and both Peter and Paul quote this verse in the New Testament because it helps them to understand why the Jewish people rejected Christ. It's because He didn't come the way that they wanted him to come. And so instead of being the Messiah who would be their king, 
He came as a savior who would die for their sins. And so he was a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense for them. Now in verse 17, Isaiah makes a personal declaration. It says, And I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. What Isaiah is saying is that no matter what happens around me, no matter what the house of Jacob does, what all the Israelites do, I don't care. I will wait on the Lord. I will put my hope and my faith and my trust in him. And this is wonderful because Isaiah's family would soon face incredible difficulty because they chose to follow the Lord. In fact, it got so bad in Israel that in verse 19, we find out that the people of God were going to the prophet of God to ask him if he would go see a a medium or a psychic so that he could speak to the spirit of dead people and get some wisdom and some guidance for them. You think about how tragic and insane that is. People of God going to the prophet of God, but not wanting to speak to the living God, instead wanting to go to talk to dead people. It, It doesn't make any sense, but this is where Israel is at. Now in verse 21 and 22, we see a terrifying picture of how deep the devastation of Israel would be. It says, They will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry. And it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. It's really sad verses. When the people are hard-pressed and hungry, they look up, and we might expect that they would look up and they would repent because they recognize that their sin has caused them to be judged. And so they would turn to God and say, God, help us, deliver us. But when they look up, it's only to curse God. And then they look to the world. Because the truth is, the world is the only thing they actually care about. And all they see is anguish and pain and hopelessness. And that drives them to deeper and deeper, utter darkness. That's not a dreadful picture. I don't know what it is. You've got the people of God living in a land of darkness and death. They're hungry, angry, at war, and enslaved. And this is all a result of their sin and their disobedience. And I know what you might be thinking at this point in the message. You might be thinking, how in the world is this a Christmas message? (laughs) It's because of the next verse, okay? Verse, chapter 9, verse 1. The next word, nevertheless. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, It is always into hopeless circumstances that God does his greatest work. In fact, God will sometimes put us into a situation where we can do absolutely nothing so that he can show us what he can do. So when everything around us feels dark and dim and heavy and we can't see the light ahead, that's when God shows up with a nevertheless. And this is his promise. I will take away the gloom. I will take away the darkness. Next question we might have is, is how? How would you do that? 
And what does that look like? That's answered for us in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them has light shined. So you remember the situation, right? We've got a people in the land of death and darkness and hunger and they're angry and they're at war and, and there's no peace. And it's just a really hard time for the Israelites. And he says, these people, those who walk in darkness, will see a great light. In the land of darkness and death, now there is light and life. Verse number three, you have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of the harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. The nation here is growing. The joy here is increasing. Like this verse is so celebratory. And then he gives these two pictures. The first one is of a farmer who goes and he, he harvests his crop and he gets a wonderful harvest that year and he does all of that work and then he finally gets it back and now he can rejoice in the harvest. It's all his work paid off. The second picture is of a warrior who's gone off to battle and he's worked hard and he's won the battle and now he gets to enjoy the reward of that victory. And there's joy in that. Verse number four, for you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. Right? Those who were in bondage, who were under the yoke, have now been set free. The rod that beat you has been broken. Now there is real freedom. And then he gives us another great visual. In verse five, he says, for every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle, and his garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel for the fire. You can imagine a warrior who's battled so many times, his sandals are dirty and dusty and disgusting, and his garments are all soaked in blood, and now he can take off those garments and off those sandals, and the only thing that that armor is now good for is fuel for the fire. Why? Because now there's peace. Because there's no need for it anymore. There's no more war. So how glorious now does this situation sound? The people who were in darkness see a great light. Those who face death have been given new life. Now there is joy and freedom and peace available. But how? How in the world could this be? How does one go from a situation that's facing Isaiah 2,700 years ago and all the Israelites to what he describes right now? Or, maybe even more relevant for us, how could a person today, if they felt like they were in darkness, trapped, without real hope or joy or peace, how could that person be set free to experience true life and light and joy and freedom, and peace. Is that even possible? If it is, we must know how. We find the answer in verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom 
to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from this time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. How is it possible that this darkness comes to this light, this death to life? The answer is simple. A child would be born. A son would be given. And now we fast forward 780 years and John the Apostle is writing a gospel looking back on the life of Jesus. And in John chapter 1 verse 4, this is what he has to say. He says, in him, in Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness comprehended it not. Do you know what he's saying there? He's saying that Christmas is not a surprise. It's not spontaneous. It's not just one day Jesus was born like, hey, God was like, let's just try this thing. This was a planned thing. John is writing back, looking back at prophecies from so long ago and saying the light has finally shone in the darkness like Isaiah was saying it always would. All of the Old Testament points to promises that were made that a Messiah, a Savior, would come. And so now, finally, this Messiah has come. And so what is Christmas all about? It's about a promise that was made long, long ago. This promise was, was made, in fact, long before Isaiah wrote what he wrote. It was a promise made first in the garden to Adam and Eve. That there would be redemption even though there's now a curse. And then we go through the whole Old Testament. We, we find these promises over and over and over again. This promise is finally fulfilled the night that, that Mary gives birth to Jesus. So if you've been following along, and you look at this picture, and you think, hey, that sounds really nice. Sounds really great that we get life and light and all those wonderful things. But how in the world... Does a baby fix all of this mess? How does a baby bring light into darkness? Freedom for the captive? How does a baby bring hope to the hopeless? And how can he be the cause of joy and peace and life? Well, that's a great question, and I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) The baby in a manger doesn't do that. It's a cute scene, right? We love the nativity scenes. They're beautiful and they're, they're nice to look at. But the birth of Jesus is only the beginning of God's unfolding plan. This plan would take Jesus 30 years later on a three-year ministry where he would live perfect and he'd bring dead people back to life and he would do incredible miracles to prove that he is the Son of God. And all this time, he would never not once sin. But then he would go to the cross And he'd be crucified as a sinner. In fact, the Bible says that he became sin for us who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. See, we're safe to talk about Jesus as a baby in a manger at Christmas time. Nobody's getting anybody in trouble for talking about the manger scene. But we can't actually explain what Christmas is about if we just stay in the manger, can we? The manger is beautiful. It's the incarnation of the Son of God becoming man. But in order to tell the story, 
we have to move from Christmas to the cross. Because the truth is, Jesus came to die. And so when we look out there in our world and we see chaos and disunity and darkness and death, it can very easily take away our peace, our joy, make us feel trapped. But here's the thing. I don't think the greatest problem is out there. We can look out there and see lots of problems, but the real problem is never out there. In fact, it's always first and foremost in our own hearts. This story of Israel, it serves as a wonderful illustration of the plight of every human being on the planet. We are hopelessly lost in darkness. We are prisoners of our own sinful flesh. Sure, we want freedom. We want to be able to do whatever we want to do. We want to follow whatever pleasure comes our way. But here's the thing. How does that work out for us? What happens is we pursue our flesh and we pursue sin and we dig ourselves a hole deeper and deeper and deeper until there's absolutely no way out. And then we look up because that's all we can do. And the wonderful news of Christmas is that God sent his son to be the rescue rope thrown down to us. He came and he lived that perfect life and he died on the cross in my place. That's the great news of Christmas. It's that Christ paid for all of my sin because that's why he's here. That's why he came. And at the cross, all of my sin is placed on his shoulders. He pays the debt I owe and he provides for me his righteousness. Right? I get to, to have, it's, it's incredible, this great exchange. We are hopelessly lost in darkness when we look to God's perfect law and even to our own consciences. We fall so short because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are not ready to stand before God alone. And so when people are confronted with the message of Jesus, they seem to respond in a couple different ways. Some look up to heaven, proud and angry, and curse God, just like the Israelites did. Some bow their heads, and they repent, and they ask God to show them mercy, just like the Israelites should have done. And what I'm asking for, what what I'm begging for you to do tonight is don't be foolish like the Israelites. Don't look up to God and think you've got this all covered. He sent his son to come to this earth and to die for you. And and all you need to do is, is bow your head and humbly turn to him and repent of your sin and ask Jesus to be your savior. Put your faith and trust in him. Receive the gift that God gave to us at Christmas. Listen to this promise in John chapter 1, verse 11, and we'll close with this. He said, Jesus came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. Remember the fulfillment of that prophecy. It'd be a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God to those who believe on his name.
the wonderful news of Christmas is this. Hope and joy and peace and life are available to all those who receive him. All those who believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved and will become the children of God. And that's fantastic news. 